now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the first episode of our medical legal death investigation special release season, Just Science interviews Kelly Keyes, the supervising deputy coroner of Orange County, California, to give an overview about the coroner's and medical examiner's professions and to identify key topics for discussion in the fields today. Listen along as our host, Dr. John Morgan, and our guest co-host, Dr. Jerry Ropero-Miller, talk around staffing issues, available resources for identifying missing and unidentified remains, and the vicarious trauma experienced within the community. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, the program of the National Institute of Justice. The Just Science podcast is now reporting from the International Association for Corners and Medical Examiners meeting in Las Vegas, Nevada uh, in, uh, uh, what are we, it's late July 2018. And uh, we have uh, with us two people today, a guest who's very well known to people uh, who know something about the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, the chief scientist for the FTCUE and the chief scientist for the Center for Forensic Science, Jerry Repera-Miller. Jerry has uh, been a guest on the program uh, many times, and she is also uh, going to be co-hosting with me today. She is on-site ICMA, and she's on-site today with Kelly P., who is the supervising deputy coroner in Orange County, California, and she has worked her way up uh, uh, in the system there in Orange County, uh, holding a great many positions, assisting the pathologists in performing autopsies all the way through being the watch commander of the coroner division. So uh, welcome, Jerry and Kelly, to the podcast today. Good morning, everyone. So, Kelly, uh, the first thing that I see is that you actually started off with a bachelor's in animal physiology and neurosciences. How did you get from animal physiology and neurosciences to working in the coroner's office. I was interested in forensics in the coroner business even prior to going to college, so I sort of picked a field of study with that in mind. Uh, I considered that perhaps medical school was the way to go, but once I was done uh, with my undergrad, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to continue with schooling anymore. So throughout college, I had internshiped at the coroner's office, and I really just loved the combination of the medical and the legal, the investigative mind. I was the kid who liked dissecting frogs, but I was also the kid who loved watching the CSI-type shows before we actually had the CSI show. So it was intentional that I picked that degree with that in mind. Most people come in with either a background criminal justice or the biology or forensic sciences. And so because it is a medical legal profession, it combines the two things. Well, I don't know whether folks know, but Jerry actually was with the medical examiner's office in North Carolina before she came to RTI. So she's actually practiced the toxicologist, right, Jerry? That's correct. And I did a little bit differently in that I went into the field of research chemistry and worked for a little while, um, but always loved crime and things like that. And so when I decided to go back to school, I made sure that it was in a profession that I 
wanted to claim as mine for the rest of my life. So that directly led me to forensic toxicology. So you all were at the IACME meeting. What's going on there? Well, this morning we're talking a lot about the October 1st shootings here in Las Vegas and some of the post-traumatic stress issues with that and uh, with that sort of the vicarious trauma field. This week we've had speakers on burn deaths. We've talked about social media and how we can use that in investigations and how to protect ourselves as professionals in the field. This is a very interesting symposium to me, coming to many symposiums in forensic science. I've always liked the fact that for IACME, they kind of have a basic track for those that are new to the field or need to have some basic type education courses. And then they have a, an advanced track where you get more into some of the topics like vicarious trauma that has been discussed. And so sometimes the two tracks meet separately and sometimes they come together during the week. So I think it's a great way that IACME has been able to put together their symposiums. I think it's a benefit to those that have been in the field for a while and also those that are coming in new. The other neat thing is the basic track really prepares people to take our certification test through our American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators, and we do offer that test at the end of the conference. So the basic track runs Sunday through Thursday, and then on Friday they're given the opportunity to take the certification test for medical legal profession. All of our classes do offer the continuing education credits for maintenance of the certification as well. And there's not a lot of opportunities necessarily in the profession, just because we are sort of fragmented and a little bit different from state to state with the different systems. But we here tailor to both medical examiner's corners and everything in between. We also get a lot of students that attend, a lot of law enforcement professionals, a wide array of people, nurses. Yeah, the IACME is definitely inviting. I know that during the week, there's certain times that they even invite the local community to join what's going on and be a part of it. And I think that's another fascinating thing about IACME. So both of you all use the term vicarious trauma, which is becoming a much more visible issue. It's always been an important issue, but it's becoming a much more visible issue across the forensic sciences. Jerry, you kind of define vicarious trauma for us and what's been going on in some of the other sectors, because I know this is this is an issue that Kelly cares about a great deal as well. Vicarious trauma, put quite simply, is that many of our first responders and professionals that are working in uh, criminal justice and in forensic science have to deal with and work with victims that have just been through devastating episodes of their life, very traumatic types of events. And with that, they are affected by it. They can't help but be affected by it because we're all human. And here, not so long ago, the communities have come together and, and the government and the organizations to say that this type of topic really needs to be proactively thought about in our organization so that we can make sure that we're taking care of our staff and making them as healthy as they can be so that when they perform their job duties, they can, you know, have sustainability and not have it affect them long term. Yeah, and it's always been an issue within our community, but for a lot of years in the death investigation community, it was just sort of expected that we signed up for this and suck it up. 
I mean, that really, unfortunately, was was what it was for many years. And we're recognizing that that's just not reasonable, not something that we can expect of our people. And we've never really been first responders because we're the, the last responders, but we are serving, you know, the same communities in the same situations. And I think sometimes even worse for our population, along with our law enforcement partners, sometimes we're actually the ones causing trauma to them. We're the ones out doing the death notifications at times. So we're even more involved in the trauma to that respect with the families. Now, certainly there's the vicarious trauma issues through some of the things we're seeing, you know, child abuse and just some of the horrific deaths you're seeing, you know, so we are seeing it repetitively. And it's not fair to just ask our population to suck it up time and time again. You know, we don't necessarily even get that some of the law enforcement people get, you know, fire gets to save lives. Police get to arrest bad guys. Our wins are things like getting people identified, getting our John and Jane Doe's identified or locating family on a, a difficult case. And the, then the next step after that win is that you have to make a death notification. And so even our wins are sort of traumatic to us. Whereas, you know, with the fire department uh, does the Heimlich maneuver and a child is saved. I mean, that's still traumatic, certainly, but our win ends in a, another situation altogether. So you all have, obviously, a real issue, and the first step to having a real issue is acknowledging that this is real, that this actually has an impact on the professionals who are involved in medical legal death investigation. The next obvious question, though, is what can we do about it? What can we do to help to deal with this issue? Well, I know NIJ has some resources. National Institute of Justice does have some resources available online, and they've been very helpful in sharing those. I know from my department, I'm very fortunate in that our coroner's division is part of the sheriff's department in Orange County, as much of California are sheriff coroner departments. And through that, we're very lucky that we have some resources. Most importantly is we have an amazing peer support counselor on our staff of the sheriff's department, but she's a free resource to us to use. So we've started doing things like instituting um, briefings after difficult cases. I mean, obviously every case is different for different people but we have started instituting briefings at our office. And sometimes those are in combination with law enforcement and police departments, but sometimes it might just be our staffs, including our, our morgue techs and our forensic pathologists, our clerical staff who maybe had to meet the family you know, when they came into the office. So, so we have that. And then she's also a therapist, so we have the option to have our staff go and talk to her. And it's gotten to a point where we've become accepting of that. I mean, I have several staff members that see her on a regular basis. And I don't know that because she tells me that. I know that because my staff tells me, yeah, I see Heather monthly. So we're talking about it and we're accepting it. And it's, yeah, I see her on a, a monthly basis or I see her as needed. So it's talking about it and making it okay and making it normal and not, you know, there's no stigma associated with it. So I think that's a very important step. And that's because we do have her as a resource. Many other offices have things like employee assistance programs that can provide the same thing. I think it's just a matter of making it the normal. So your employment assistance programs that you're talking about, let's say in your office, are more integrated into your office, where I know in a lot of locations, the employment assistance program is more run through the human resources or HR programs, and so maybe not as in touch, as you say, with daily occurrences of being able to have the opportunity to do a stop-by wellness check. So I think that that's really, I applaud your organization for doing something like that. They're doing a good job of trying to take care of us, and I'm trying to you know, facilitate that in our office as well.
So at one point you talked about um, identifying missing and unidentified remains, Kelly. And I know looking at a story that I saw recently that you were talking about the Orange County situation, maybe not so recently, the story had stated that there were a hundred missing and identified in your location. Can you kind of go over, you know, what is a missing and unidentified type case and maybe the process of dealing with it? And is that number of 100 that you're dealing with in your jurisdiction, is is that the norm across the nation? Are you high? Are you low? That is something I am, I guess, fortunate enough to be assigned the task of uh, handling our unidentified decedents cases. And we have records dating back to 1953. And we have pretty good records back that far. There are little uh, fatter files as the years go on, but we do have right around 100 that are long-term unidentified, and we usually consider them to be a long-term unidentified if after three or so months, just depending on the situation, we just don't have any leads on who they potentially are. Obviously, you know, from 1953, we're not having a lot of leads, but when I have the opportunity, we pull out those files and we'll round table them and we'll see if there's anything we can do on them. I, I recently did follow up on some leads from the 1953 case. So it is an epidemic around the country. Uh, several years ago, the uh, NamUs system, the National and Missing Unidentified Person System was developed. And that's a resource available to the public as well as law enforcement and the MDI community. And it has two sides. People can put in their missing persons. So if your cousin is missing, you can put your cousin in as missing or XYZ Police Department can put a, a more formal police missing report in there. And then the coroners and medical examiners also put their unidentifieds in, and it aims to make matches. So, so is that a program that just professionals can enter information, or can the families do it directly? No, absolutely. Families can do it directly, and, and there's a lot of volunteers throughout the country that are regularly looking at it and offering suggestions of possible matches. I get emails probably every couple weeks of something. So there are groups that, that have created Facebook pages for some of the missing or unidentifieds that they find in the system. We had a, a long-term missing persons case from the 80s, but she was killed in a traffic accident, and we were just never able to get her identified. We had a couple of little pieces of information on her, but she was a, a beautiful young lady, and the um, community had created a Facebook page for her, for our Jane Doe, through the NamUs system. They did a partnership with the FBI to reevaluate all the fingerprints that were within the NamUs system, and through that FBI fingership, fingerprint partnership. They've gotten, I believe it's something like 200 uh, unidentified persons identified. This particular gal being one of those cases. It was a real success story. She was one of those cases that in our office, everybody's always known about her. She's one of those files we always would pull out and work on. And we had always known that her name was Andrea. And when we got her identified, we were able to find Andrea's family and let them know what happened to their daughter. It was So this FBI NIJ study, how long ago um, was it put into place? Is it, so it was a partnership. Recent? I believe it was formed... March of 2017. So fairly and, recent. Yeah, they actually uh, got their first hit the first day that this partnership was created. Fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty amazing the things that as a community we're doing behind the scenes to still care about these students just as much as we care about uh, anybody who's passing away today. We're a pretty caring and compassionate field. You have to be. Well, yeah, I think that's something that's really underestimated by people who don't know the medical legal death investigation field is at some point, you know, somebody has to care about that decedent. Sometimes it's you're caring about identifying them. Another time it's 
caring about what happened to them and trying to make sure that you have a proper cause of manner of death. But there's a there's a respect our society has for the deceased, and I think that reflects who we are. And I think it's really great to see the kind of commitment to things like the famous system and unidentified dead, and also you know, caring about the people who, who do all that work is so critical. I know, Kelly, if you're anything like me, you're not going to be able to say one thing, but you've been doing what you do now for 20 years or something like that. What is the most rewarding types of things with your career? What kind of keeps you going? The thing I think that's always amazed me is the thank you notes we get from families. You know, we are dealing with people at their absolute worst. You know, we're, we're dealing with them when their parent has passed away or when their child has passed away. Tragically, I'm knocking on their door at two in the morning to let them know their 16-year-old died in a car accident. And I absolutely have done that. But these people, they take the time to sit down and write a thank you note, a handwritten thank you note. And that I think that's what keeps us all going. We tend to share those amongst our office because usually the family isn't just dealing with one investigator over the course of the investigation. They're calling in and talking to somebody else the next day. So we we tend to share those. You know, it's impossible. Nobody writes anything anymore. People don't send letters. So the fact that they actually take that time and you know you've you've impacted them positively. I mean, it's it's an unpleasant situation. We always say that, you know, you, there's no good way to handle it, but there's a bad way to handle it. And the goal is to not, you know, a death notification, to not handle that badly. You want to handle it the best way possible. And, and when you get those thank you notes, that really reminds you of the impact of what you're doing. And, you know, the same with this case where I mentioned the unidentified, you know, just in talking with her family and, and being able to let them know finally after all these years, I don't like to use the word closure. And um, we were just hearing in the session that the word closure doesn't really work so much in our community. It's just a new normal and helping them ease into their new normal in the best way possible. Yeah, I think the families keep most of us going, you know, the interactions, as you said, whether, you know, we deal with the hard side of things, but um, the appreciation that you get from the families and just the comfort that you can provide them, I think, keeps all of us going. Yeah, certainly, you know, even as a toxicologist, I mean, these families, they want to know what happened to their kid. And, you know, when the basic toxicology screens don't come back with any answers, I know our toxicologists, they're looking, what else can we do? What else can we find? This really looks like it's a a toxicology case. And they'll keep going just as much as we will. Yeah, it's not a, you know, a direct pathway most of the time for these cases. And I think that that's another thing that keeps me going is even as much as you've been doing this um, for many years. Every case that comes in, you really have to start from the beginning and treat it as an individual case, and you never know where the turns are going to take you. So I think that having a little bit of that kind of challenge for me is another thing that um, I appreciate for our fields. Yeah, there's never two cases that are the same. You never know what you're going to get when you go into work. Um, the phone rings, and it could be a plane crash, it could be a car crash, it could be a baby. You just never know. You might think you're going out on something, and then it changes. I, I remember a particular case I went out on one time was, it was just called in as, I'll say, a little old lady dead in bed. She had died home alone, so I just went out there to just take a look and make sure everything was consistent with what I would expect to see. And I, I went out there, and I, I saw signs immediately that caused concern. And I uh, told the police department, I said, I think we need to call homicide on this one. And the, and the patrol detectives thought, 
why it's a little old lady dead in bed. And I said, well, I see A, B, C, and D. So we went ahead and called it homicide and, and sort of ramped the case up with a criminalist out there. And uh, it did turn out that she was, in fact, murdered. You go out on one thing and you have to be open to anything and everything. And you have to be looking for signs and symbols. And you really can't assume anything. But you just never know what your day is going to hold because she also could have been just, you know, a little old lady dead in bed. Just so that everybody's aware of what is the difference between a coroner and a medical examiner's office, can you kind of describe that for us? I can as best as there is an answer to that question. Generally, the difference, and it varies very much by jurisdiction, because even within coroners, you have all sorts of different uh, requirements depending on the jurisdiction. But generally, the difference, as I would explain it, is the structure of the office, who the head of the office is. Generally, a coroner is an elected official who oversees the office, and they're the ones who ultimately are responsible for the manner of death and the cause of death, but generally that, that cause of death should be in consultation with a forensic pathologist who does the autopsy. And they're ultimately the coroner is responsible for signing a death certificate. In a medical examiner system, generally the head of the office and the person making the final decision would be the medical examiner who is most often appointed and is almost certainly a doctor, but not in every jurisdiction, and hopefully a forensic pathologist, although we do have such a forensic pathologist shortage in this country. I think some of that is changing. In some states, I believe the coroner has to be a physician. They don't necessarily have to be a forensic pathologist, but they do have to be a physician of some sort. So in our county, as a supervising deputy coroner, a lot of that responsibility falls on us, uh, the supervising deputy coroners in Orange County. We're the ones signing the death certificate, but absolutely done in consultation with our forensic pathologists. Nothing is done without the expertise of our physicians. So I purposely asked Kelly that question because while it seems like a pretty easy question to Answer, it's not. And I know that I'm involved in and Kelly and the IACME is getting ready to help Bureau of Justice Statistics is um, fielding their second ever census for coroners and medical examiners offices. And those types of questions of, you know, understanding what is the national status of coroner offices versus medical examiners offices, their staffing, their budget, their operational and policies and practices are all kinds of topics that will be covered by this census because when you look out there in publications and reports and everything that kind of information is not necessarily out there at one location and if it is it could be dated so I think these kind of censuses where we're looking at the different uh, forensic science populations are vital to helping these communities with the needs that they still need to get funding for or need to address research or what have you? I think it's about 2,600 different offices throughout the country, and those range from you know, the teeny tiny jurisdictions where they have you know, 1,000 people in their population to your Los Angeles and your New York jurisdictions where there's you know, 10 million people. My county population is about 3.3 million people. You'd hope that everybody does everything the same, but we just don't know that. And I'm personally super excited about the census that's coming out. I see me 
is looking forward to finding out how we can better serve our communities. And by knowing what our communities are, that will help us. And I'm also a participant on the Medical Legal Death Investigation Subcommittee of the OSAC. And I think it will also help us as we try to develop more and more standards in the medical legal death community. I noticed you were talking about some of the staffing issues, especially with the forensic pathologists. What staffing issues are you facing in Orange County? I know the survey is going to be looking at these kinds of things in some detail because, you know, that is kind of the story right now, right, is that there has been some difficulties in staffing a lot of medical examiner and coroner offices. Uh, Do you all experience that and what strategies are you using in Orange County to address it? Absolutely. I think here at the conference, I think we have 400 plus participants. And the consistent thing you hear from everybody is we need more people. We're understaffed. We need more people. We're understaffed. I think part of that issue, I know we're currently hiring. We're doing interviews at my office here at the end of the month. There's not a lot of movement within the communities. Uh, Some of the coroners in smaller jurisdictions in particular, they have a a secondary hat that's maybe their other full-time job, a lot of paramedics in some states, and the coroner is something they do as a side job to serve their communities. Um, They maybe have eight or ten investigations a year, so that's sort of a secondary thing. So there's not a lot of movement within the communities. You know, we might get two, three hundred applications for a position, but of those applicants, we're lucky if we have one that has some death investigation experience. So it's really finding the right fit. You want somebody that has the right education, knowing we're going to be providing the training, but we're also looking for sort of a personality fit. It's not more of a traditional lab science. So we're needing people that can talk to people. We're looking for people that are intuitive. It's not a bench science. It's a combination of a, a bunch of different things. And we recognize that we're going to have to train these people. Almost certainly there's, I think, only one master's program in the country in medical legal death investigation. Currently there might be a second one that's recently popped up. So really, I think one of the challenges for us is finding people who are going to be a good fit, knowing we're going to have to invest six months to a year to train these people. And then you do have some turnover. I mean, because of the emotional nature of what we're seeing and and repeatedly being subjected to back to the vicarious trauma thing, we invest time, effort, and energy into the training. We really want to keep these people. But inevitably there is turnover as they have families and then maybe aren't interested in in investigating baby deaths anymore. Fortunately, we don't have a lot of baby deaths, but they're difficult and particularly difficult if you've got a baby the same age at home or, you know, a a two-year-old struck and killed by a vehicle and and you've got a three-year-old at home. That's an issue of, of keeping people too. Another thing that I learned with preparing for the census is just how destitute some offices can be, especially like rural offices, as far as things that you take for granted in this day and age, feeling like everybody has a computer to do their work on is not necessarily the case. And I think that a statistic, one of the statistics that came back to me that was kind of truly startling back in 2004 and even here recently is that, you know, when you're looking at medical examiner and coroner's offices, that only a little bit over 30% of them actually are able to perform their work with a computerized system to help them. So I think that learning that kind of information is critical to helping these offices. Yeah, I think there's offices, and hopefully this is changing, but I know back when the first census was done, because I I love that first census, I quote it a lot, there's offices that are run out of their garages. There's offices, a lot of morticians that are also the coroner. They're required to run their government coroner's office out of their own mortuary. The median budget, I think, was $37,000. That's for a whole county office. 
unfortunately, we've always also been sort of subjected to the whole adage that dead people don't vote, so we don't necessarily get the resources. But it's becoming more and more relevant of, of just how important what we do is. And as we're seeing things like the opioid crisis, the data that we produce is so important. And, and it's so important that we do a thorough job and we get it right the first time. If we're not investigating properly deaths, we're not going to know the true extent of the opioid crisis. If we're not requesting toxicology, if we're not ruling out other factors, we're not able to provide adequate data to be used in our public health role. Another topic that I wanted to talk to you about, Kelly, because I know that you're very critical to the education and training activities that go on in your office, but also in the professional organizations that you take time to participate in, like IACME. So for new um, medical legal death investigators or young students that are thinking about getting into this field, what's something that you really just don't get from the normal educational type of topics that they'll get in their formal education that was most surprising to you as far as what you expected to receive from this field. And then once you got into the field, something surprising that you didn't necessarily expect, but you have really benefited from. Like I said, the nice thing about my job is you never know what you're going to get in a day. So you're constantly learning. So there's not really anything particular because because one day I'm a, a semi-pharmacist, the next day I'm a semi-toxicologist. By no means am I a toxicologist, but I have to know a little bit about a lot. We usually take a couple of interns a year. And, you know, some things I tell them that they can do is a medical terminology class is really helpful. There are times we're talking to doctors. There's times you need to understand causes of death in some medical terms. And obviously, again, we have five forensic pathologists on staff that are an amazing resource and available to us anytime to ask questions. But having some medical uh, terminology is wonderful. Having a little bit of background in a basic criminal justice class. And there's so many online that are free these days that you can take. The ISCME basic conference is open to anybody. It's just really just a combination of a bunch of different things. Um, And we do a really good job in California. In addition to being the Orange County Coroner's Office, my office is also the California State Training Center. Our trainings, we don't generally do too much public training, although we do do regular tours and things to serve our community. And we'll do public speakings and work with our community, certainly to educate them. But as a California State Training Center, we are responsible for the training of death investigators in California. And we do an 80-hour basic death investigation course that they are all required to attend. And then in addition to that, we do ongoing more advanced specialized trainings like elder abuse training, homicidal drowning training, death notification training, mass fatality trainings. Those are all things that we've offered periodically throughout the years, as well as in California, we do a an annual training symposium as well with a similar format to what the ISCME does with a bunch of different speakers every year on a bunch of different variety of topics. One of the things I heard that is critical is that you never get to quit training in this field, whether it's your on-the-job training and a new case that you got in and you got to figure it out, to the fact that you come to these meetings to find out what is new in the field. I really like the fact that it's a lifetime learning opportunity for us because we have to stay educated to do what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. I've taken pages of notes back to my office already. I've been doing this 22 years and they're going to be annoyed with my ideas and (laughs) and just how many things I've got written down in my notepad from just the last two days alone. It's also to me though what makes it fun. Like I mentioned, you you don't know what you're going to get that day and 
I might need to learn something. I mean, with what's going on in toxicology, there's there's just so much development and there's always something new to be looking for. Just the ways of administration that we're maybe looking for in toxicology, whether it's the, you know, tainted Visine bottles. I mean, I, when I started this 20-something years ago, you would never even thought about a Visine bottle, but now it's maybe something we're going to take to account or uh, Imodium. I mean, now that people are abusing stuff like that, it's we're just having to learn what to be looking for and really keeping up with the trends. You know, a gummy bear isn't what it used to be. All right. Well, I think this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. It's been so great to have Kelly Keith, the supervising deputy coroner from Orange County, California, on the program. And I certainly appreciate the excellent co-hosting job that uh, Jerry Rivera-Miller did today. She really stepped up to the plate and get a uh, very important uh, set of information about uh, about coroners and medical legal death investigation out there. For those of you who want to learn more about the IACD conference and what was presented and hear more of the uh, uh, material that uh, Kelly is going to be bringing back to Orange County, we're actually archiving the sessions from IACME on the FDCOE website. You can get those at www.forensicscoe.org. And uh, we'll also, of course, for uh, any of the podcast listeners, make sure that uh, uh, all of that is linked from the podcast page over to the pages where you can get the archived presentations for IACME. Thank you very much, Jerry. Thank you very much, Kelly, for this wonderful conversation today. Thanks, John. Thanks, Lauren. Be safe. Next week on Just Science, John Fudenberg, the coroner for Clark County in Nevada, discusses coroners versus medical examiners' systems. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. 